You are listening to As a Woman, episode 32, Your IVF and FET Questions. This episode is all Q&A of some of the questions I'm most commonly asked. I'm branching off what you want to know to dive into the depths of things you need to know before considering IVF or an embryo transfer. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition, while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to As a Woman. You are currently listening to episode number 32 IVF and FET Q&A. This episode, I am taking questions directly from you guys, and I am answering them in the best that I can. The truth is, some of you are so smart and so well-educated. You have dove into this world of infertility headfirst and learned everything you can, and I love that. I love seeing women empower themselves with education, and I'm going to do the best I can to share some of what I know and how I counsel patients. Now to start, you should not be listening to this episode if you have not already listened to IVF and FET. I have two separate episodes just dedicated to the basics of both the processes, what they are, different protocols, why we do certain things. This episode is a little more meaty, so if you haven't already listened to the other ones, don't just stop in right here. Also, I want to say I love you guys so much. I put out a little sticker hey, what are your questions? Or I tell you to go to the website. I have over 50 questions about IVF and FET. Isn't this telling us that there's so much information that women want to know? And I can speak for myself and I can also speak for all the REs who are out there on social media. We want you to have this information. There are none of us who are trying to be paternalistic or keep this information from anybody. It's just really complex and hard for everybody to understand. That doesn't mean that you can't understand it, but you have to be open-minded. You have to do some background research. You've got to educate yourself about the basics so we can dive into the nitty-gritty. But that's what we're going to do here. I'm going to read off a question I got asked, and then I am going to answer it. And we're just going to plow through a whole lot of different things. The first one I'm going to start with is, should I buy my medications overseas? No. The answer is no, and it's for a lot of different reasons. I understand this whole process is so expensive, so there's a huge draw to getting anything cheaper that you can. And I have nothing against Costco, but like the thought process in my mind is this is not the time to go to Costco. This is the time you want high quality products that are verified. You don't need them traveling over an ocean, sitting out in the heat for God knows how long. You don't need them to get messed up or broken down or be diluted because things are not as controlled. So in my, I actually will send no prescriptions to a patient. Like I'll send them to the companies, but I'm not going to give you a drug list order and let you order them from overseas and then use them in your cycle. I promise we're trying to get you drugs as cheap as possible. We don't force you at my clinic to use a certain distributor, but we want medications that we know will work. There's no point in skipping out on this part of the process. Okay, next question. How do women afford this? Guys, that's a great question. I practice in Texas, and this is not a mandated state. 
If you followed me on Instagram, you saw that I went to the Capitol to try to advocate for coverage for fertility preservation for cancer patients, and our state wouldn't approve that. So if they're not going to approve covering fertility treatments for patients who have cancer, we are nowhere close in Texas to providing mandatory fertility coverage by all commercial insurances. So that's a dream here. There are some states that have mandated insurance, meaning if you work for a company in one of those states, they have to offer you fertility coverage as a part of their benefit program. So states like Illinois and Massachusetts, these are amazing benefits that these states have. And access to care is expanded when we take finances out of the picture. That's not my life. That's not reality here in Texas. And so how do people afford it? They will borrow money. They will take out loans. They'll put it on a credit card. They will ask friends or family members. They will try to see if they can get a job that does have a progressive employer like Dell or Starbucks or Google or Apple or Facebook or somebody who is providing insurance benefit coverage. They'll apply for grants to see if that can help. But the truth is, sometimes there's no easy answer. We prioritize decisions on money every day. Do we make coffee at home or do we get a latte? Those are easy because the scale is not so big. But little changes in your financial behavior can help. But it is hard. There is no denying that financial limitations is the number one reason keeping people out of care who deserve families and need IVF, for sure. You can help by partnering with organizations like Resolve, by, you know, advocating when you see those of us in the fertility community talking about bills trying to be passed, advocating to your representatives that this is important to you as a consumer. The current thought process is that infertility does not impact very many, even though it's very common. So it's not one of the top concerns for many legislators. But we need to be looking out for the other women in our world, and we have to be advocating for each other. Okay, how can nurses support patients going through IVF? Oh my gosh, nurses, you are the heart and soul of a fertility clinic. We rely on you. Our patients rely on you. As a patient, if you're going through, open and honest with your nurse because they're your biggest advocate. They are the glue holding everything together. As a nurse, making sure that you are paying attention to your patient's needs and something that I hate that happens in medicine but it happens in every field, is that sometimes the louder patients get more attention and the patients who are just following along on their plan perfectly go under the radar more. So don't be afraid to be your own advocate. If something doesn't sound like what your doctor said, just ask your nurse. There are no wrong questions here. All questions are accepted. Every nurse who's listening will say the same. They don't get offended when patients ask the same question over and over. It is crucial to all of us that you understand your role in the journey and you feel comfortable with our treatment plan. Okay, what is our max age for IVF or donor egg? So to understand that, for IVF, autologous IVF is when you're using your own eggs. Your eggs come out of you, fertilize with partner sperm, embryos are formed, embryo goes back inside. That's autologous IVF. Most clinics do have upper age limits because we start to see a severe drop in success rate as women become over the age of 42. Now, for our clinic, there's a hard cutoff at 45, meaning if you're over 45, for whatever reason, you can't go through. If you are between 42 to four, or really 43 to 45, 
It depends. We want to make sure we feel like there is a good enough chance that we're elevating you over nature. There's some evidence that women who are going through IVF at 43 and older have no different rate of getting pregnant than they do in natural conception. However, if you have bad sperm, if you have a tube blocked, if you've had a lot of miscarriages for genetic abnormalities, then maybe IVF can help accelerate your efficiency and get you that child. So we take 43 to 45 as a case-by-case basis. Over 45, it doesn't matter if you have the best ovarian reserve in the world. So few of your eggs are going to be genetically normal. It feels unethical to take that money from you when it's at such a large amount, when you should, in fact, have better success with donor egg. Donor egg is what it sounds. Eggs are coming from a younger patient. They are healthier because they are younger. They are more genetically stable. There are different types of donor. So there is a fresh donor, meaning young woman goes through IVF and you get all of her eggs. And there's also frozen donor or donor egg banks. And this is just like a sperm bank, meaning like a woman goes in, donates her eggs, goes through an egg retrieval cycle, and then her eggs are batched up into smaller allotments. For the most part, you when you get frozen eggs, they're cheaper because you're not getting as much. The cost of that cycle, FDA screening, is split over multiple people. However, fresh donors tend to get you more embryos. So depending on how many kids you're wanting to add to your family, there's a different amount. Most clinics do have an upper age limit, somewhere usually between 50 to 55, of which you can be a recipient. And it depends on a lot of different factors. One, you have to be in good health. So you have to have mammogram, colonoscopy, see the high-risk OB, get an EKG, see cardiology, before you can do this stuff at an advanced age in my clinic. You also, depends on your partner, some clinics have a combined age cutoff, like both partners' ages together can't be over 110 or 115 or whatever they said, meaning we want to make sure that we're ethically not putting children in bad situations. This is all highly controversial. When do you, as a doctor, get to say that somebody can't be a parent. That's hard stuff. Uh, The oldest patient I've had go through with donor eggs was 51, and she did great. She It was definitely the way for her to go, and it was perfect. So I think everybody's really individual and unique when we set clinic clinic guidelines and cutoffs. It's because we don't want to do more harm than good. You know, when you walk into the clinic, I don't want you to have some catastrophic OB outcome, which we know does increase with age. And we don't want to be setting you up for failure or your family for failure. Good segue to the next question, which is, do you do reciprocal IVF? Oh, my gosh. I love reciprocal IVF. Everybody who's ever worked with me and has heard me counsel a lesbian couple knows that every time I say, this is my favorite way to help a family. Because I just love the idea of it. What reciprocal IVF is, two female partners, one essentially is the donor to the other. So you have partner one goes through IVF and you use her eggs. Embryos are formed with a sperm donor and then the embryo goes into partner two or the recipient. So reciprocal IVF, both partners are playing a role just in different ways. Love, love, love this option just because it's so unique and such an interesting and amazing way to build a family. Certain things we think about is who fits each role the best? who's going to be the best to carry a pregnancy, who potentially has medical problems, who's the best or going to have the most or the youngest for eggs. We could really look at couples trying to decide what's the best way to get them to that end goal. But I love 
reciprocal IVF. Love it. Okay, a lot of questions about side effects of medications, and I understand. Side effects and risks, these are a big deal to everybody, and you want to know what you're getting yourself into. I tell most patients you'll probably tolerate the process a lot better than you think you will. The side effects of IVF. So remember, IVF is when you're using the hormone injections, the gonadotropins to grow your eggs. You're going to get localized injection site tenderness or bruising from the stomach injections. Also, as follicles grow and develop inside your ovary, your ovary is going to be stretched and become heavy. So many women will say they feel pelvic pressure. It's very hard to describe until you've experienced it. I always say you don't know where your ovaries are until you know, but you feel this intense pelvic pressure. You will get bloating as your estrogen levels rise. That causes some of the liquid water component of the blood to come out of the blood vessels. And that water component will make you more bloated everywhere else. When your ovaries are larger, there is a risk of ovarian torsion. And that's the ovary twisting on yourself. So you'll see many of us put exercise restrictions on patients during the process. And I am one of those. You'll also see that you become at risk for ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which is an extreme form of over-response. This is where your estrogen gets so high, so much water leaks out of your blood vessels, and your internal blood gets very dehydrated. You become at risk for blood clots and like blood clots in the periphery, like in your legs. You also can get fluid on your lungs or in your abdomen, like ascites or a pleural effusion. You can get an infection inside that fluid. You can go into kidney failure because your blood is really dry. OHSS, ovarian hyperstimulation, is something we take very seriously. And because of this, we actually don't see very much of it anymore. Higher risks if you're younger and you have more eggs when you go through the process because your estrogen can get higher. But modern techniques such as antagonist protocols, Lupron triggers, freezing all embryos, has made this so that it is highly uncommon now. And then also worth noting is when you go through IVF, the suppression process, there's many different protocols we can use to suppress you. And those that require a pre-suppressant like Lupron or a pre-antagonist before you start the process, you often will not feel so great during that. You'll feel a little premenstrual or menopausal. So that's something to be aware of. The egg retrieval process itself is low risk, but not no risk. Incidence of complications is about a half a percent includes infection, bleeding, or damage to surrounding structures, or risks with anesthesia. So you are going to sleep during that process. So that is a low-risk time, but not a no-risk time. Most women actually feel worse after the retrieval. So if you're really worried about side effects, you'll probably feel okay during the stimulation. It's the hormone drop after retrieval when most women feel really bad. It's a big crash, so their hormones are really dropping in a pretty abrupt manner. So that's when you'll feel the worst, at least if you don't have a transfer. If you have a transfer, your hormones will stay higher because the pregnancy, if you get pregnant, will support more hormone production. If you're not having a transfer, we pull out all hormonal support so we can get you to bleed as fast as possible. But you will feel not so great during that time. Very few side effects of the medications for an embryo transfer. Regardless of the type of embryo transfer, a controlled cycle, a modified natural, or a totally natural, frozen embryo transfers have estrogen levels much closer to nature levels, so you're not really going to feel bad at all through that process. The biggest downside or side effect is if you're getting intramuscular progesterone and oil injections, 
most of us are giving that to controlled cycles, that is a bigger needle. Think about like a flu shot in your butt every day. And that causes local discomfort, pain, tenderness. That's real. I actually usually say the biggest risk with an embryo transfer is the risk of multiples. There are a lot of reasons why we only put one embryo inside. Imagine a competition for resources. I put this one embryo inside and it is trying to implant wherever it thinks is the best place. We want it to be able to implant, get all the nutrients and blood supply from the placenta without fighting a friend for the space. We see higher live birth rates with single embryo transfers, and we are a huge fan of that in the field in general, especially with these genetically tested embryos. But there is a higher risk of embryo splitting or identical twins with IVF than you see in nature. So the natural risk of identical twins is about half a percent, and with IVF, it's closer to 2%. So that's a significant increase. So relatively, there's a huge increase in identical twins with IVF. The absolute risk is still low, but in centers that do more than 100 transfers a year, we are certainly one of those clinics. You're going to see many different couples who will have identical twins. So certainly putting in one embryo and it gives you two babies, we can deal with that. We don't want to put in two embryos and get you three or four babies. So that's your biggest risk right there is actually multiples when it comes to an embryo transfer. And that's whether it's a fresh transfer or a frozen transfer. So that's the next question to me is, how do we decide between a fresh or frozen transfer? Transparency, guys, I'm all about it. I do so few fresh transfers now. And a lot of it is the patient population that's coming to see me, meaning a lot of women who have waited a little bit later to start their families. We're trying to get multiple children. We're doing genetic testing on embryos. So if you're doing genetic testing on your embryos or you're trying to bank up embryos before you get pregnant, we are certainly doing frozen transfers. If you are at risk for ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, you're young, you have a lot of eggs, you have PCOS, frozen embryo transfer. So to be a candidate for a fresh transfer in my world, for the most part, you have to be younger and not getting many eggs and not concerned about future pregnancies. You're in it for now. You just want one baby. We're not trying to make sure that any of our frozen embryos will result in babies later. That's a minority of my patients. The data on this is murky from older studies, meaning embryo freezing used to not be as good, so not as many embryos survive the freeze-thaw process. Now, 99% of embryos survive, so we feel comfortable freezing them all and waiting till a better cycle. There's also concerns that high estrogen and progesterone environments of an IVF cycle are actually changing the receptivity of the uterus. And I'll touch on receptivity more, but that the window is shifting because of high hormone exposure and that birth complications are actually worse in fresh cycles, especially when estrogen or progesterone ratios are higher. And so we are seeing improved outcomes in frozen embryo transfer cycles. Previously, when we didn't do genetic testing or we didn't love freezing process of embryos, the very best embryo or embryos were going in that fresh cycle. And so the second tier embryos was what would be a frozen embryo transfer later. No longer the case now. I have tons of data with good quality frozen embryos, our tier one embryos, and we are seeing great pregnancy outcomes. So most of my patients will have a frozen embryo transfer 
or an FET. Now, an exception here is InvoCell, which InvoCell is another thing that was asked about. InvoCell is a newer option that some clinics are doing. It's actually taking IVF back to its core. It is a device, an incubator, where egg and sperm are placed in it together. So you put the eggs inside, you just put the sperm inside, close the incubator and put it in the vagina, held in place with a diaphragm, and a woman incubates her embryos or her partner's embryos, if this is reciprocal InvoCell, in her vagina for the five days instead of in the IVF lab. You can't do ICSI, so sperm fertilization, intracytoplasmic sperm injection can't be done. We don't do genetic testing on these embryos. You do a minimal stimulation approach to try to keep the cost down. So we use this as a low-cost alternative to IVF, capping it at $10,000, meds included. So that's a great price. It's all a lot of money, I know. But how we do is that we're not maxing a woman out trying to get all her eggs for that month. We're trying to get about 8 to 12 eggs. We want a woman who's young enough so her egg quality is good. We want somebody who has good enough sperm that we think it will fertilize. And you may not get embryos for future children. So that's very important to understand that if you're choosing InvoCell, it's a great alternative improving access to care, but it's a minimal stem IVF. We don't get as many embryos. Can't do ICSI or genetic testing. We do a fresh transfer and you may not have future children from the process, but it is a really neat alternative. So that's the only scenario in the past two years where I've actually done a fresh transfer has been in an InvoCell case. Now, there was a lot about frozen embryo transfers and protocol. I talked a lot about this in the FET cycle. You can have a natural cycle, and in order to be a good candidate for this, you have to have a natural cycle. You must ovulate regularly. It can be a little frustrating because you're just hanging out, waiting for your body to ovulate, going to see the doctor all the time, very often, so we can monitor a follicle. Typically, even in a natural cycle FET, we will trigger a follicle so that it will ovulate, and then we will start progesterone at a timed interval since progesterone is so important for that window of receptivity. A modified natural cycle is where we use usually letrozole, or you could use gonadotropins, but you're using a low-dose stimulation to try to get one to three eggs to grow. These cycles, natural cycle and modified natural, are for women who we believe their uterine environment will be better with endogenous estrogen versus outside external estrogen. A traditional controlled cycle is when you use estrogen pills, patches, injections, vaginal, something to grow the lining in a nice and controlled fashion. I love controlled cycles because it's easy for most women. You know when things are happening, checking off dates on your calendar, know when your appointments are, you know when your transfer is. And after the unpredictability of IVF, that's very nice. But I do have some women who are better candidates for a natural or modified natural cycle. Typically, these are women who ovulate on their own, who perhaps I'm concerned they may have a thin lining or their lining may grow better in response to their own natural hormones. They are women who don't tolerate exogenous hormones very well, so maybe they tolerate the natural shift a little bit better. We don't have that randomized control trial that y'all are all asking for. I have little birds saying that there's different things in the works that will be showing us maybe if natural cycle is a good option for certain patients versus a controlled cycle. Currently, some of us are using it as just a option for people who have 
failed a controlled cycle to try to do a different environment or for patients who are less tolerant or who desire a more natural approach. Hopefully we will get data about what's really better. Is there an advantage to a natural or modified natural or is it the exact same as uncontrolled? Is it controlled better? The truth is we don't know and that's really important to understand when your doctors are going through pros and cons. A lot of questions about ERA biopsies. Uterine biopsies in general. Let's just talk about endometrial biopsy. So a friend says, I had an endometrial biopsy done. What that is, it's it's a procedure like drawing blood, except we're taking out the endometrium, the lining of the uterus, to sample it in a lab. So the procedure is speculum in vagina, small catheter through the cervix, pulling back with a little vacuum-like traction. We're able to use a pipel and curette, take out some of the tissue. If it sounds kind of painful, it's because it is. It's not pleasant. Things that are pleasant, we don't mind doing to everybody. This is not pleasant, and a lot of these tests are experimental. But just because something's under study somewhere, it doesn't mean that it's not valid and important. There are some good uses of endometrial biopsies, but it's important to understand why you're having it done, what's the point, what's going to differ after the test based on what it's showing you. So, one option is that you can do an endometrial biopsy in the follicular phase of the first half of the cycle to look for plasma cells. Point of looking for plasma cells is looking for something called endometritis, a low-grade infection or inflammation inside the uterus treated with antibiotics. Now, some people do this. There's some thought that perhaps implantation failure or miscarriage can be associated with endometritis. Other people just treat empirically with antibiotics. We don't have a clear-cut guideline on what's the best option there. Previously, endometrial biopsies were used to diagnose luteal phase defect. So taking a biopsy in the luteal phase and looking to see how much progesterone receptor exposure there was to try to see if that could be correlated with luteal phase defect, that actually used to be part of the diagnostic workup for infertility. And that is not being done anymore because it's not helpful for us. It's actually not shown to be a good diagnostic criteria of luteal phase defect. However, Doing a biopsy in the luteal phase at the time of implantation can help show us the receptivity of the uterus. This is an ERA, an endometrial receptivity analysis biopsy. It is done essentially the day you would do an embryo transfer. The hardest thing here is you have to wait like a whole cycle before your transfer. You're doing a mock cycle, taking your medications, coming for your appointments. But instead of putting that precious embryo inside, we are doing a biopsy of the uterus. Now, this biopsy is looking at estrogen and progesterone receptors and trying to tell us what is the best day for implantation. Like, hey, this is the best day. Uterus is perfectly receptive. Or is it saying, hey, actually, should be a day earlier, a day later. You're pre or post receptive. However, a couple important things. This test has first been studied to show validity in patients who are having recurrent losses. So applying it to patients with very few embryos or one prior euploid embryo failure is not standard of care, although there are circumstances, of course, where we will do it. It's all about proper counseling and making patients understand. It's also important that the environment which you do the test needs to mimic the environment of the transfer. We see a lot of patients, because it's not well studied in the field, who will have one protocol, get an endometrial receptivity analysis, and then they use a totally different protocol for the transfer. 
we don't have any evidence that that correlates. So if you're going to go through the time and the procedure and the money of doing an ERA, you want the transfer cycle to line up with the testing cycle. Also, do you do this if there's only one embryo? I certainly don't do it for every patient. I don't think patients need to go through the procedure or spend the money or take the time for every patient before a transfer. Do I sometimes consider it before just a single embryo transfer if you only have one embryo remaining? I do. Do I sometimes consider it after one failed Uplay transfer? I talk about it. The truth is, remember, even with Uplay transfers, we're expecting pregnancy rates around 65 to 70%. That means a third of all people will not be pregnant after one transfer. And to apply an invasive test to a third, that's a huge group. However, it might depend on how many other embryos you have, how much comfort it will give you to know this. Understanding that studies are showing us that almost 90% of patients in that scenario are going to have a receptive endometrium. So we're doing the test more to confirm what we think, to make sure you're not in the 10%, Don't be upset if it comes back and your endometrium is receptive. If you haven't had a lot of miscarriages or failed implantations, this test has not been studied in you. The last type of endometrial biopsy is newer. It's under study. It's to test a marker of endometriosis. So remember, endometriosis is when you have endometrial tissue growing outside the uterus. It's to see if there is at risk for having endometriosis. Endometrial biopsy that they're checking for BCL6, it's a histologic marker, and thought is that women who have higher BCL6 levels are more likely to have endometriosis. What you do with that information is dependent upon your doctor. Do you do this test and then do you go to surgery to remove the endometriosis? Does that improve your outcomes? We don't have full data there. It would be great to have this as a screening test for endometriosis. Right now, we only have surgery. That's our diagnostic test. So in the future, being able to do an endometrial biopsy as part of that earlier workup for women we're concerned may have endo saying, hey, this test is positive. You're now a better surgery candidate because we think we're looking for something. That may be helpful to a group of women. But remember that we don't have data that shows that resection of asymptomatic endometriosis improves pregnancy outcomes in IVF. And I think that's really important. If we had that piece of data, then more of us may be convinced that it would be helpful. doesn't mean that it's not helpful. It means understand if your doctor's talking about an endometrial biopsy, what are we testing for and what are we going to do with this data? If you're going to go to surgery with a positive BCL6 test, then yeah, do it. But if you're not going to go to surgery either way, how is it going to make any difference before an embryo transfer? Just understand what you're testing for and what will be done about it. Okay, a few more questions about transfers. One is, what about difficult transfers? What can you do for a difficult transfer? Certainly, most of us map out the path of the cervix as what we say. We do a mock transfer in the office so we can anticipate if it's going to be difficult. Difficult transfers, we can have different types of catheters available. If we think there's scar in the cervix, we may go to the operating room for a brief procedure, dilate up the cervix, put a hysteroscope or a small camera in, make sure everything looks normal. Sometimes I have placed a stitch in the cervix during the egg retrieval or when a patient's asleep to then use it to kind of tug on the cervix if it's extremely difficult for the transfer. Very rare, but that's another alternative. We really don't want to be grasping the cervix with the tenaculum at the time of the transfer, unless we have to. 
I never have, but I have known people who have just canceled a transfer and froze the embryo because they couldn't get it done without too much trauma to the cervix. Other options include just relaxing the patient with sedation or going under anesthesia for the transfer if the limitation is more of a patient discomfort or inability to relax, which sometimes there's real reasons why that is difficult. Thoughts on uterine cavity evaluations before transfers? Yes, everybody needs them. If there is polyps inside the uterus or scar tissue, those things need to be taken care of before an embryo gets put inside. Think about it like the embryo is very precious and we want to make sure we have a very good home for it. So some type of cavity evaluation, either with hysteroscopy, like I just mentioned, or a saline ultrasound or an HSG test, but something needs to be done to make sure that there is no abnormality inside the uterus. And if you have a polyp, polyps cause inflammation. They're benign components of the endometrium that are projecting into the uterus, and they will cause inflammation and decrease pregnancy success rates. So if you have a polyp and your doctor says, we need to do a polypectomy or take it out, very fast, very benign procedure, it is okay, just say okay. A question about mosaicism. So mosaicism is reflecting the biopsy process of IVF. So if you're doing IVF with PGT or pre-implantation genetic testing, we are taking a sample of cells from the outer layer, the trophectoderm, to go and test them. PGT is not perfect, but it's very good technology. And what actually happens is approximately five to eight cells are sampled, and each cell is analyzed in a karyotype is determined, meaning the number of chromosomes for each cell is identified. These can either be normal, abnormal, or come back as mosaic. In order to be normal, that means essentially all the cells show the normal karyotype. So they have to be less than 20% abnormal to fall into there. If you're a low-level mosaic, that means 20 to 40% of the cells are abnormal, but the majority, 60 to 80%, are normal. For a high-level mosaic, that means the majority of the cells are abnormal, but there are some normal cells. These are 40 to 80% abnormal cells, but there are some normals. And then if it's more than 80%, it's just read off as abnormal. Point here, we don't transfer abnormals. We love to transfer euploids, so the normals. Low-level mosaics can potentially be transferred if they're the last-ditch embryo. They have a much lower chance of becoming a baby, at least half of that of what a normal embryo does. But sometimes babies do exist. Also, a higher chance of miscarriage. You need to be properly counseled on these. For a lot of patients, spending time transferring low-level mosaics is time taken away from doing another cycle and getting more eggs that could become embryos. High-level mosaics are not transferred in the majority of practices. Sometimes they are being transferred under study circumstances, but they have a very low but not no chance of becoming a baby. So understanding this is highly important because when the technology first came out that did genetic testing, we only got normal and abnormal results. Most practices only about a year or a year and a half ago started actually getting all of the results, meaning these companies then came back and reported mosaicism. So for years, we were transferring low-level mosaics as genetically normal. We thought that they were, that's what the read came off as. So a friend of yours who went through IVF two years ago had a normal embryo on PGT and then ended up having a baby that had 
Down syndrome or trisomy 18, it wasn't necessarily that the test was wrong. It could have been that she had a low-level mosaic and the assumption there was wrong. The truth is when we have low-level mosaics, if we are going to transfer one, I'm going to tell you this. I don't know what the baby is. I never really know with PGT, but if all the cells are consistently the same, there's a very high chance the baby is the same. However, if there are some abnormal cells in this biopsy sample, I don't know that if my embryologist hadn't chosen to biopsy just a slightly different part, if the result would have been different. And that is important to understand if you're choosing to transfer a low-level mosaic. But understanding that we were transferring low-level mosaics and seeing still miscarriages with PGT embryos and failed implantations may explain some of why the results didn't seem as cohesive. Now that we're doing PGT and we're transferring these euploid embryos primarily, we are seeing better outcomes. It doesn't mean 100%. It's still 65 to 70%, but it's still much better, and we're seeing lower miscarriage rates. It also means that if you're going to transfer a low-level mosaic, I'm going to tell you off the bat, you need an amniocentesis. You need invasive monitoring to determine the true karyotype of that baby once you get to that level if you get pregnant. So you just need to know what you're up against if you choose that road. Guys, there are still so many questions. I'm going to do one more, and I think I'll have to have an IVF FET Q&A part two at some point for those of you whose question wasn't answered here. But there's a lot of thoughts about exercise or working out and what is permitted or prohibited. Here is my thought through the IVF and the FET process. A couple different things. In IVF, I want your blood supply to your ovaries to be a maximum, and I also don't want to put you at risk for ovarian torsion. Therefore, I don't want your heart rate too high so that blood is being shunted away from your ovaries. So I'm going to ask you to keep your heart rate less than 150 beats per minute. And I don't want any activity that can cause the ovaries to bounce inside your body because that can increase the risk of ovarian torsion or twisting of the ovary, which is a true surgical emergency and may result in ovarian loss. So you can work out, but you're going to have to modify potentially, especially if you're a high intensity girl. When it comes to an embryo transfer for an FET, I don't really care about the whole bouncing. Your ovaries, for the most part, are quiet, especially if you're doing a controlled cycle. If you're doing a modified natural, it's a little bit different. But if you're doing a controlled cycle, then all I care about is the heart rate restriction. So I'm going to say less than 150 beats per minute. Let all of that good blood supply come into the uterus. We want that baby, when it's implanting, to be able to implant in and get all the rich oxygen blood that it needs. I don't want your uterine blood vessels constricted because you're hardcore exercising. So whatever that is for you is going to be individualized. I also usually say no sex during the process until we see a heartbeat on ultrasound. Some of this is protective. Maybe your doctor has different recommendations, so ask them. But I think I would never want a couple to think they had intercourse and then she started miscarrying and never blame the sex or cause some issue in their sex life later. The truth is, sometimes miscarriages happen. They happen despite all the evidence that they shouldn't. And if they happen right after you happen to have sex with your husband, I don't want to induce another issue into your relationship later or a fear. So we want to get to that stage where we have the lowest chance of a miscarriage, which is after we see a clinical pregnancy with a heartbeat. All right, guys, that's all I can get to in this episode. I appreciate you sending in your questions. If you'd like me to do another IVF FET Q&A sometime, send me a message through Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD 
or leave it on the comments of the IVF FET blog post. That's nataliecrawfordmd.com. That way I can know if you guys found this useful or if this was just too in-depth and maybe didn't deserve its entire podcast. As always, I appreciate all your love and support so much. I appreciate every rate, review, and share of this podcast. Thank you for supporting me and my journey to empower women with education, to promote fertility awareness, and to encourage women to understand their own bodies better. Until next time.